if you have one week or one month crisis, maybe fear can also help. But uh, in, a, in a long-term crisis like this one, it's really unsustainable to keep on dealing with fear. Hi, this is Eric Pagley in the Rocket FM studios in Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for episode 18 of Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic. Joined in the studio, not on the phone line today, but in the studio in person. It's been a long time since I've actually seen you face-to-face. Mark Vandenbosch, uh, good to see you, man. Yeah, nice to be here. It's, uh, I guess the last time I saw you was about three beards ago. Yeah, well, you're, you're <laughs> glad you're keeping count, but yes, it's been about three beards. They've come and gone a few times. Yeah. But, uh, Mark, a lot to talk about today, even though the pandemic is not the top issue anymore. This is, I think, the first episode when we can truly say that the pandemic is not the number one news item in uh, much of the world uh, here in Sweden. It's uh, certainly a big story, of course, but the uh, the protests that started in Minneapolis over the killing of George Floyd and spread around the United States and now around the world has become the big international news item. But a pandemic still an important thing. And in some ways, these stories are cross-fertilizing to some extent. I would think so. Uh, we discussed the fact that there's some kind of global psychosis ongoing with people being cooped up inside and the frustrations growing in terms of these restrictions on our personal freedoms. I think this raises to the surface a lot of uh, latent frustration and racial uh, interactions in the United States in particular, but throughout the world have always been a sensitive issue. And I think they're really blowing up now because of this climate we're in. And here in Sweden, of course, there was a, a protest, a Black Lives Matter protest a few nights ago. Drew about a thousand people in central Stockholm. There was some scuffling with the police as well. Or the more um, the more relevant aspect of that is it, it was a bit of an experiment. I think these, these protests around the world are in some ways an experiment because we'll see what happens in two weeks, whether these will be incubators and spreaders for uh, the coronavirus, if we will get some new waves, some new upticks uh, here in Sweden and elsewhere. I think for the people partaking in the protest, I don't think they saw themselves as people conducting an experiment. But uh, what we're referring to as well there is the congregation of people in a very tight space and for the most part without masks. And that is what we worry about over time. One of our previous guests, uh, Dr. Bjorn Olsen, had uh, some words to say about that, that he thought this was uh, quite a foolish thing to do. No no critique of the, uh, the content of the protest and the protest as such, but the fact that uh, you are, as you mentioned, bringing a lot of human bodies together and uh, the pandemic is still, I mean, it's still here in Sweden. The death counts have not gone down that much. It's still pretty shocking to see 77, 80 people per day here in Sweden. Yeah, that is the average. And uh, the, the curve had been going down, but now there's some evidence that in certain parts of Sweden, the numbers are going up once again. And that probably is true in many other countries also. So even though we're sort of dealing with a new normal and we're accepting this, but just because we're not talking about it as much as we used to does not mean that the situation has improved. I should also mention, uh, speaking of our, uh, our previous guests, we have uh, one coming up, Giuliano Di Baldessari from uh, the Center for Natural Hazards and Disaster Science at Uppsala University one of our previous guests on episode nine. He's coming back and it's going to be a two-part interview, Mark. We have uh, one shorter piece today that I think is very interesting. A longer second part, part two of this interview with uh, Giuliano that uh, will air on uh, probably the next episode of this podcast. And uh, we'll get to that a little bit later on, but uh, we have more to talk about here and uh, also um, a lot of stuff going on here in Sweden. I think Sweden is still attracting a great amount of international uh, interest. Anders Tegnell, the state epidemiologist, is the, uh, the point man, the rock star. And he had a fairly brief 
brief interview earlier this week, a couple of minutes long in Swedish, but somehow this became big international news where he basically, now he went and walked this back afterwards, uh, but I don't think the, the walk back got much attention. But it never re- does. <laughs> his original statement uh, or his original uh, comments basically saying that, yeah, if, if we knew then what we knew now, we'd probably do things a little bit differently. We would have been a little closer to the sort of the consensus international response to the uh, coronavirus and not this non-restrictive Swedish response that has become uh, international news headlines. Yeah, he said it in kind of a candid way, and that's pretty much his style, but he, I don't think he really meant it the way it was interpreted by The Guardian, by The New York Times, and, and many other international publications. Well, the truth is, understanding Nell is not someone who's been trained as a communicator. Politicians usually think carefully about what they say because they realize that out of context, certain things can take a life of their own. Tegnell isn't really like that. I kind of like him for that reason. He's very candid about his views. He admits to not being foolproof. He's, he's sort of turned into an international punching bag. <laughs> not sure why, but I guess uh, everybody needs uh, some kind of foil to, to focus on, and uh, Tegnell has been it. Still very popular here in Sweden, though. I think people really see him as... As a genuine guy, as a guy that's not trying to massage his messages or anything, he's basically saying it, calling it as he sees it. And I should also, when I say a walk back, what I mean is more he uh, clarified his comments. Nuanced. He nuanced, or I think he felt that he was misinterpreted in in the international press. It happens. uh, He's not a politician. I don't think he has a personal agenda either. You know, there's a guy in his mid-60s at the end of his career. uh, He just wants to help us get through this crisis. Sweden's image has become quite an issue as well. I think uh, Swedish uh, leaders Mm. are becoming quite quite concerned about the, uh, not just the attention, but the image that is being The shaped. brand, the Swedish brand. Yeah, and Swedes, uh, you know, Swedes are very concerned about this. Uh, they're, they're quite good at shaping this sort of the image of Sweden and cultivating this this brand of Sweden. And uh, I think it's going to be damaged. I think there is a great concern here amongst leaders. Well, there's been some evidence that uh, the government has actually already made contact with some of his emissaries working uh, in diplomatic posts overseas. And uh, they're trying to sort of soften the message. And there's an active uh, strategy right now to try to to alter the perception of Sweden. Obviously, this has repercussions economically in terms of trade repercussions as well in terms of the ability for us as Swedes to travel overseas. Yeah, as you mentioned, I mean, Swedes are being uh, blocked from from entering certain countries, even some of our neighbors. It is uh, kind of shocking, actually, that Swedes are being singled out as almost uh, toxic. They are lifting restrictions here in Sweden about for domestic travel now, so at least we won't be contained one or two hours from where we live, but we can actually go all over Sweden, if not still to... Uh, to Denmark or Norway or Finland or other countries that are, that are blocking us. Yeah, June 13th is the date where some of these travel restrictions will be lifted. But getting back to how people are perceiving Sweden internationally, I think on some level we, we provoke them. Why aren't we more worried? Why aren't we suffering more? Why... And we are suffering. I mean, obviously, uh, there's been a lot of fatalities. But I think people are perhaps envious. There's a psychological element is what I'm getting to. I, I, I entirely agree with you, actually. I was going to bring this up. I was going to actually save this for the next episode. But uh, I think that this idea of, of, of resentment, that that, Swede, that that people feel that Sweden has not taken this seriously enough, there's a certain amount of jealousy. But I think also maybe uh, there's a perception that Sweden has not uh, been... Uh, they haven't demonstrated enough solidarity in dealing with this major global international crisis. At some point, we should get a psychologist. We talked about getting some priests or some spiritual leaders on our program. I think a psychologist would also be interesting. As yeah, there's, there's many there's many ways to look at this, the way that, um, that Sweden has uh, tried to, to sort of defend its image, but also I think that the way that the international community has 
sort of singled out Sweden for this less than vigorous response. I don't, this is a complicated issue. I think this is actually something we're going to have to come back to in this podcast. Now going to my 360. Uh, in Africa, we spoke briefly about this. Uh, a lot of people are blaming China for the corona crisis. There's resentment building. And in Africa, there is uh, so much frustration that Chinese people are now in danger. The local populations are sort of revolting. And there's been some of people being murdered just for being Chinese. Yeah, this, this thing is a pressure cooker. I mean, uh, whether it's China, whether it's Swedes, <laughs> whether it's Americans... Uh, uh, I think that uh, this is going to have all kinds of implications for the way that people get along in the world uh, in, in many different contexts. And one final news before we get to our speaker today is also I'd like to speak about how people are handling the crisis and the types of things that individuals are doing to sort of keep themselves safe. And there was a study from the CDC just a few days ago specific to the United States, but of 502 people that were interviewed in a random study, 39% have reported intentionally engaging in at least what is is referred to a one high-risk practice not recommended by CDC for the prevention of COVID-19 transmission. Now, some of the examples used are the application of bleach to food items. Doesn't sound like a great idea to me. 19% said they've done this. Using disinfected products on hands or, or skin, 18%. But the one, there's a whole bunch of things here, but the one that I think really sticks out is that 4%, still a fairly large number, report drinking or gargling diluted bleach solutions to help them mitigate the risk of the disease. Home remedies. Uh, but I, I guess I guess uh, if these people have uh, responded to some survey, I guess they've all lived to tell. That's the good news. By the way, we're not recommending any of these, uh, these remedies no, here in this podcast. Not. It also shows the fear associated with this and the, uh, the lengths that people will go to to try to protect themselves. And you know, in fear... Actually, this is a great segue, Mark, because uh, fear is one of the topics that we talk now about uh, with Giuliano, the guest uh, here on this podcast. And we're going to talk about the, the different um, levels of fear surrounding the coronavirus in Italy, the country that he's from, and in Sweden, the country that he's lived for a number of years now. A very interesting discussion, comparison between Sweden and Italy on the perceptions in general of the coronavirus, how deadly it is, how uh, contagious it is. And these are um, perceptions that are of filtering through uh, the media, from the words of, of the decision makers, from the general publics, and how this has influenced the response in Italy and Sweden, these different levels of fear, but also some, some deeper issues too about the ideas of death and how uh, different countries approach their own personal health, but also the inevitability of death. It's actually pretty fascinating. It's a short interview with Giuliano, this one. It's a, it's a short of, of two parts of the interview. The other one, which we'll run next time, will be a, a more detailed analysis of the two uh, countries, a kind of a follow-up from the previous episode nine when we talked to Giuliano. But here in this episode, Mark, we're going to talk to him about uh, these um, maybe softer factors, the idea of the perceptions of the virus and the perceptions of mortality and personal health with uh, Professor Giuliano Di Baldessari, the uh, director of the Center for Natural Hazards and Disaster Sciences, based at uh, Uppsala University. Yes, this is correct. The perception of the virus is, uh, is very different between um, Sweden and Italy. In particular, what we can see is that this difference also reflects the uh, government strategy, being it either hard measure or soft measure. In Sweden, we know that COVID-19 is taken very seriously, but it is portrayed as a very aggressive type of flu, uh, which has a significant but relatively low level of mortality among most of the population. Uh, but it can be extremely dangerous with unacceptable level of mortality uh, for all people above 70 years old. Uh, while in Italy, the COVID-19 is portrayed by the media as if it was uh, an extremely uh, dangerous disease uh, with high level of mortalities. 
such as it could be the plague, uh, you know, the Yersinia pestis or HIV, but spread through droplets. Uh, you can see, for instance, in the, in the media, there is a continuous use of mortality rates that are based on uh, the number of confirmed cases, uh, which we know that they strongly underestimate the total number of infected people. And thus, there is this idea about COVID-19 mortality being as high as 10, 15 percent, which makes most people really, uh, there is a lot of fear to get such a virus. I think this has been relatively positive in the first part of the crisis. People stayed home. They followed the instruction. In a sense, this was functional during the lockdown. Uh, the fact that people feared that uh, something as similar to Ebola uh, was going around in the society. But now that uh, Italy is opening up, this is quite of a problem because uh, the media, as well as the government, has contributed to have people living with fear. And now the question is, how can people stop doing it? Because if I, if I think that such a disease has a 10% mortality, it's very difficult to go back to a livable life. That's really fascinating. So was this, are you saying this was a intentional communication strategy to sort of make sure that the government policies were followed or in this, the role of the media as well? Was it some sort of sensationalism to get more clicks or what's, what's the origin of this, of this enhanced fear factor surrounding COVID-19 in, in Italy? I think it is both. Uh, I see this as a self-reinforcing feedback. Uh, On the one hand, at the very beginning of the crisis, uh, we knew very little about COVID-19. So the same World Health Organization was very cautious about mortality rates and uh, we didn't know much about it. So it was kind of being on the safe side and being very concerned about trying to also because the idea was to contain the virus rather than mitigate spreading. Uh, But then this has also made the media, which are always looking for sensationalism, emphasize cases uh, speaking in any time about when we have uh, younger people that are affected Uh, the way they die, emphasizing these few cases and uh, spreading fear in the population, which was also functional uh, during the lockdown. So it is, I think it is a, it's a reinforcing feedback between, you know, on the one hand, the government that wants people to stay home, uh, the media who are looking for the big headline. So it's interesting to see this. My, my, My concern is mainly about the long term, because if you have one week or one month crisis, maybe fear can also help. But uh, in a, in a long term crisis like this one, it's really unsustainable to keep on living with fear. So it will be interesting to see how in the coming weeks and months, the perception of risk will shape decisions in Italy as well as the way in which people live. It's another interesting area of comparison with, with Italy and Sweden, because Sweden, the bigger problem has been complacency, where people haven't taken this mm-hmm. as seriously as, as they should because the government hasn't seemed to react it as strongly as other countries. So I think in Sweden, we've actually faced just the opposite problem with people not showing enough respect, enough fear for this virus. Exactly, exactly. Uh, in Sweden, it's exactly the opposite. Uh, and uh, since in both countries, uh, I think media were uh, relatively positive towards the government. In in Sweden as well, there has been a self-reinforcing feedback. On the one hand, media portraying COVID-19 as a very aggressive flu, essentially, yes, uh, more dangerous than a flu, but not much more. 
And this has also made, on the one hand, the government popular, having soft measures, but then also in terms of the way in which we communicate, to what extent is the virus uh, spreading across society. So in Italy, there has been a lot of emphasis on the confirmed cases, which we know is only a very limited amount of them. Uh, but on the other hand, in Sweden, for, for a lot of time, there has been an overestimation of such a spreading. That's interesting because it's also in that case, there was an exaggeration towards the idea of, you know, maybe a mortality rate around 0.2%. And we know that it is higher than that. And I guess also the the other differential there would be that uh, since Sweden was hit by this virus a couple of weeks after Italy, Italy being the first country in Europe, you in some ways were shocked by this. There was there was no precedent. There was no explanation. It was almost something supernatural. That whereas in Sweden, there's a little time to reflect and prepare, even if you can be very critical of Sweden's response, especially in the early point. In Italy, there was must have been almost something almost uh, biblical about this hitting so so hard and so fast. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that was uh, that was, I think, very difficult to handle because when the first cases emerged in Italy in uh, late February, they essentially they, there was already a diffused spreading in the in the society, especially in the Lombardy region. And there have been uh, a couple of weeks differences compared to Sweden, uh, when um, where the spreading has essentially started in the early March. In fact, it was, I think, a very difficult time for everyone because most European countries, actually, they, they, they kind of thought that this COVID-19 was, okay, yeah, was was serious, but not too much. Uh, there has been this investigation about uh, European meetings that took place around the pandemic, and that this didn't seem to be uh, really the, uh, the big priority, and we were speaking about mid-February. Uh, we know that very popular uh, virologists in Italy uh, were claiming that, you know, the COVID-19 will never go around in Italy. Uh, this was also the case in Sweden. Uh, so there, there was a big surprise effect. And the reason why there were different uh, different perceptions about the virus, I think this, this is more rooted into also a kind of uh, cultural differences between the countries. My perception, at least as an Italian who lives in Sweden, is that in general, most Italian people are more concerned about their own health than uh, the vast majority of people in Northern Europe in general, not only Sweden. And also there is a different relationship uh, with the the fact that death is unavoidable, uh, which uh, seems to be more accepted in Northern Europe than uh, in Southern Europe, and thus in Sweden rather than in Italy. And I think these things have have made a difference in uh, in, uh, prompting these two different trajectories, uh, which then they self-reinforced, ended up having a different type of measures, different type of perception, and different type of impact on the, on the, on communities. But what is striking, as I said at the very beginning, is that the net outcome for the virus spreading so far is relatively similar, which is quite, quite interesting from my point of view. Really fascinating. Thanks again for joining us here on the podcast, uh, Professor Giuliano Di Valdesari. Thanks, Eric. It was a pleasure.